0: To find simple ways to boost your true wealth.
1: Welcome to the show. This is Crystal Arnold, your hostess of Money Wise Women and founder of Money Morphosis. I live here in Oregon and uh, very close to the California border and have been following uh, some of the innovative measures that uh, California has has been moving forward on, um, you know, not only fiscally but also environmentally and uh, with, with many women having been elected uh, recently into their uh, legislature. And uh, just so excited to have our guest here today to share some more about um, about how California is a leader and innovator. And uh, today our guest is Fiona Ma, and she is California's 34th state treasurer. She was elected in November 2018 with more votes than any other candidate for treasurer in the state's history. Fiona is the first woman of color and the first woman certified public accountant elected to the position. So simply said, Fiona Ma is the state's banker. Her office processes more than $2 trillion, with a T, in payments within a typical year. And so she is obviously a money-wise woman who has much to share in this field. So welcome, Fiona. I would love to hear uh, first from you, just telling us about what you find uh, most exciting about your work that you do.
2: Thank you, Crystal, for having me on the show. I think the most exciting part about this job is that I am using both sides of my brain. And in most jobs, you don't necessarily do that on a daily basis. So as an accountant, uh, I specialize in real estate taxation, have an MBA in finance. I get to use that wonky side as I process you know over two trillion dollars worth of money that comes into my coffers, oversee a 100 billion dollars in short-term investments and issue, and oversee about 95 billion dollars in bonds. So that's on one side of my house. And then on the other side, I chair 16 different boards and commissions, many of which uh, deal with policy issues that I care about and that I am prioritizing and working on. So my three big top priority issues uh, in this job is housing, uh, job creation and retention, and the environment. And we can talk a little bit more about how uh, my boards and commissions tie into those three uh, main focuses. So that's what I'm most excited about, being the treasurer of the fifth largest economy. And I have to tell you that finally, after four different elected positions, my parents are proud of me that I am not wasting my education and private and public sector experience.
1: Wow. Well, I I am certainly uh, impressed and and glad that you're in the position that you are. And uh, interesting, you you brought up your parents. I was going to ask a little bit more about uh, your upbringing and your own personal relationship with money and what led you into this field.
2: Yes. So my dad, growing up, I had a tiger dad. Uh, Growing up, he wanted us to be one of the lead professions, a lawyer, engineer, accountant, or a doctor. And since I was good at math, he decided I should be an accountant. So early on, my job every month or every time my parents wrote a check was to balance their checkbook. In the fourth grade, I ran for the position of banker of our Snake River Valley project. And I think all of these little, um, you know, steps that he pushed me um, to do, oh, also following the stock market and helping him to invest in different stocks kind of led me to that position where I felt comfortable with money. And I followed his advice and went to the Rochester Institute of Technology for my undergraduate degree in accounting, finished uh, my four years, and my parents decided to move from New York to San Francisco, where I got a job with one of the Big Eight accounting firms. Back then, doing real estate taxation. So all of my life, from childhood to you know to today, has really been focused around money and being comfortable with money. Um, and so I think as you know, parents, my advice uh, for them is if you want your child to do something, if you kind of guide them and push them and encourage them enough in a specific area where it's easy, um, it seems fun, it's very practical, You know, maybe someday, you know, their child can go from being an accountant to the treasurer of a great state.
1: Hmm. Wow, what a cool story And, and uh, many of our listeners are women and uh, just really glad to see more representation in in both the financial field and and in politics. So thank you for being such such a pioneer in this way um, and and really appreciate your three priorities of housing, job creation, and the environment. Um, wanted to talk a little bit more about the environment and obviously California has been a leader in in a lot of ways environmentally and wanted to specifically talk about um, you know uh, s- fossil fuel divestment in in some of your funds um, and, and some of the biggest two retirement funds um, CalPERS and um, and the State Teachers Retirement System and just uh, wanted to hear some more about what you've done already and what you plan to do uh, as far as divestment from fossil fuels.
2: Yes, Uh, so this is my sixth month on the job and one of my um, duties is to be a voting member on CalPERS and Calsters. And divestment from fossil fuels is and has been Uh, a very hot topic. Last month, we had a number of junior high kids come in and really protest uh, about our investment in various fossil fuel um, companies. So we as trustees, many of us, are focused on the environment and climate change some of us more than others since i was in the legislature and went through the passage of ab32 back in 2006 which really led the nation in terms of setting climate change goals uh, that we are really pushing our staff to look at where we invest um, kind of the esg models right Uh, the environment, the social, and governance um, goals of a particular company to make sure that it is in line with many of our values here in California. But as trustees on pension plans, we also wear another hat, which is the fiscal hat. And there is always that struggle because as trustees, our goal is to try to make 7% on our investment every year. And so the argument for some is, we should be really focused on the bottom line and trying to uh, earn that 7% versus some of these other social goals. And my opinion is that you can have both. There are many companies that are out there that are focused on the ESG principles. And honestly, in the long run, I believe investing in companies with good social and governance models, these companies are gonna do better in the long run because what these companies do is not only uh, have a bigger global picture and goals, but they also tend to treat their employees better, right? With respect, with a sense of collaboration, cooperation. uh, And, a sense of buy-in from people who work for them to strive and push the company toward more sustainable models, making sure that they don't make products in companies uh, in countries that are mistreating their workers. Um, you know, m- investing in processes uh, or products that are more environmentally friendly and sound. So I really am a big believer of the ESG model and making sure that we are moving in that direction of divesting from fossil fuels.
1: So exciting to hear. Thank you for your long, long time support of that. That movement um, really does feel like will lead to the ultimate well-being and, and prosperity of um, both your state and in the country and the world. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, I, I've been talking to Gregory Wint. He's a financial advisor and steering committee member for the California Economic Summit. He's worked with the Milken Institute and uh, he, he just had John Chung join the board. And so they're really looking at advancing innovative financial solutions for these kind of triple bottom line economic development and things like public banking and, and really, uh, you know, drawing the interest of impact investors and, and how we really can create, um, you know, collaborative partnerships that, uh, benefit the, the people and the planet and, uh, And so, just uh, curious if there's anything you'd like to say about um, the importance of, you know, kind of innovative approaches uh, in California as far as uh, whether it's in impact investing or um, just creating a healthy financial ecosystem.
2: Yes. So, I joined um, when I started this job earlier this year, I joined a group of women trustees on the board of CalPERS and CalSTRS in a movement called Trustees United. And our goal is really to shine a light on those companies that are not taking sexual harassment and violence in the workplace seriously. And we know as trustees that we should be and could be putting our money where our mouth is and as the biggest and second largest pension plans in the country. Uh, We oversee over $550 billion worth of investments. And I think we as Trustees United are really pushing our board and our management team to take these allegations seriously when they do arise in the news. Uh, to make sure that we are calling the companies asking, what is their policy um, against sexual harassment, discrimination, workplace violence? Are they taking actions when these allegations occur? Um, And so we're really trying to piggyback on the Me Too movement and take this to another level that has to do with companies and their pocketbooks and their bottom line, and ultimately, you know, their brand. If their brand is tarnished, that's not only going to affect their company, but it's going to affect the investment uh, returns that we make as trustees on the two largest pension plans. So um, that is one way that we are trying to make an impact in terms of impact investing.
1: Mm, Great, that is so important, and I just appreciate you as a woman in such male-dominated fields, like I said, of politics and finance, and just curious if you could tell us what you feel like makes you an effective leader and, um, you know, and the importance of bringing more women, both having equity in pay and representation.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think, uh, number one, the fact that I am a woman and woman of color, um, changes the dynamics when representatives of companies come and visit me my chief of staff is also a woman of color she's filipina and now I see when companies come to visit that they tried to bring you know a woman uh, they tried to bring an Asian woman um, so that's at least two women sitting in a room where before they have not had those opportunities and we um, get uh, together with a lot of these women in public finance, and they have thanked us um, for that opportunity to kind of push the envelope to ask these companies, what does their governance model look like? How many women and women of color do they have on their leadership team? What does their board of directors look like? And by asking those questions, uh, it really does um, kind of force these companies to look at themselves and how uh, you know what the diversity looks like at their companies, uh, because ultimately, if nobody is holding them accountable or asking those questions, then things don't change right It continues to stay as a boys a good old boys club uh, when we are issuing bonds and um, you know, working with our underwriters or our corporate investment um, or corporations, you know, we have the ability to also ask those similar questions. And by asking those questions, they know that they're going to have to answer those questions and perhaps they're going to be, you know, ranked uh, accordingly. And so I think as women in these industries, we have to continue to, you know, push the envelope, um, ask for the data and demand that there is uh, some sort of results, not only um, not only asking but you know what are the results. So following up, uh, last year, Governor Brown signed a law that requires every publicly traded company headquartered here in California to have at least one woman on the board of directors. And I can hear right now that companies are going to say, well, we tried, but we couldn't find any women. So I am launching an initiative in my office to keep a database of qualified women who want to serve on these corporate boards. So when I ask the questions of these companies, you know, how many women do you have on the board? And if they tell me they don't have any or they're looking for them, I will have that information available. Uh, you know, a list of resumes.
1: That is brilliant, Fiona. I just feel like you, the feminine leadership is about relationships and this networking and prioritizing people and and amplifying the voices of of women. So, thank you for that innovation and and um, approach. I, I really like that. Um, so, another hot topic in California is uh, public banking. I interviewed Ellen Brown uh, a couple months ago, and uh, you know, a- AB uh, 857 has a bill moving through uh, the legislature. And if listeners don't know, um, public banking, uh, well, this bill in particular would uh, not establish a public bank, but would simply provide municipalities with the option to do so. And then towns and cities across California could independently make a decision about whether or not a public bank is right for their community's uh, needs. And I was just amazed to hear that um, you know up to 50% of public infrastructure project budgets often go to interest. On the loans to private banks. You know, these four, 30 to 40 year bonds are often, uh, yeah, then financed by these private banks. And so, uh, for, for listeners who don't know, these would be, you know, a place for tax revenue to be collected and then could be leveraged uh, through fractional reserve banking to uh, increase the money supply uh, for. Funding education and infrastructure. So, just curious, your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, first off, uh, I am the state's banker. So, since 1850, um, I bank all of the state agencies. So, in essence, uh, my job is to, you know, uh, eliminate fees, uh, fines. Uh, And really try to manage the state's money for all the different boards, commissions, agencies uh, in a fiscally uh, responsible and inexpensive way. Um, So I do support the public bank model. Uh, I think what is happening or the movement today, and I know that I have been leading the effort to bank the cannabis industry, is because banks today are not legally allowed to take cannabis money uh, openly or easily. And so for the last five years, I have been trying to figure out how uh, to bank cannabis, which uh, is legal in the state of California and in 37 states probably right now. And that has led to more discussions about public banking, right? If the regulated banks that are out there are not able to take it? Can California have its own bank? Or what we're working on right now is SB 51, which would allow state chartered banks to apply for this special cannabis license. So that's one area that I've been working on. Then there are the public bank advocates, you know, the Ellen Browns, uh, who don't like the fee structure like you mentioned they charge high fees uh they uh don't want to give loans necessarily uh to you know to certain customers uh it's not easy the amount of paperwork and frankly there's so many people that are unbanked for a number of different reasons right they just can't open up a bank account because of bad credit so that's i think the other Um, you know, folks who are supporting AB 857, uh, to allow certain municipalities to open up kind of a a city owned or county owned bank where they could do essentially the same thing that, you know, we're doing here at the state level, uh, as at the state treasurer's office. So I think it, um, is definitely a growing movement, uh, as banks consolidate and become, you know, maybe their fees are too high and people are not able to access money for loans or credit, I think this movement will continue.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was interesting to hear about North Dakota, who has the only public bank that's been around for about 100 years and how they fared better after the 2008 financial crisis uh, than many other states. Um, You know, I'm interested. So California has this California infrastructure bank. It doesn't really, it doesn't take deposits. You know, it was described to me as basically a revolving loan um what what do you think about turning that into a depository bank so that uh they could the state could leverage um that money to kind of expand money supply
2: yeah i mean i i think um any idea is possible right there just has to be a, a will and financing that goes toward it so the infrastructure bank was set up by the legislature And funded through the governor's budget to provide this type of uh, funding for projects. And a public bank could be set up in the same way. Uh, We did a study, or the state treasurer's office uh, during the last administration did a study called the state backed financial institution, uh, in parentheses, public bank for the state of California, servicing the cannabis industry feasible. Feasibility Study 2018, uh, because after we passed uh, Prop uh, 62, um, there was a great interest in banking the industry and hopefully uh, being able to derive about a billion dollars worth of taxes uh, from the cannabis industry. And based on the evaluation or the report that was done, um, that there were approximately 29 public banks that were chartered and operated between 1917 and 2017. However, uh, the only one that is really uh, still in existence is the Bank of North Dakota and recently approved the American Samoa Bank. So people are still, you know, trying to open up public banks uh, to do public good. Uh, to ensure that more residents than less you know have access to this fund, but part of the issue that we face is the capitalization of the bank, and i 'm not a banking you know capitalization expert, but the report said that the process of establishing a public bank will Uh, likely require six years and require over $35 million before the bank can begin to offer services. Now, this is California numbers because the state, right, is so big, but for local uh, governments who would want to open up a city bank, obviously, uh, the amounts would be less to capitalize uh, and could require less time. Just because of the sheer nature of the size, so it really, um, I think, does depend upon the will of the municipality, the elected officials, and then also funding from, um, you know, the uh, the the general fund budget.
1: Mm, yes, yes, it's a complex situation. Uh, I'm um, you know i I really appreciate your work in in the cannabis industry and both getting greater banking access to those um those businesses and uh just wanted to hear some more about the challenges and opportunities that you see creating banking access for the industry and the second part i guess is the actual collection of of the tax revenue um I found you know they were Anyway, it seems like in 2018 about $345 million was collected in in revenue from that industry, which was significantly lower than anticipated.
2: Exactly. And and that's why I am a big advocate of creating banking access for the industry, is when I was on the State Board of Equalization, which was my last position from 2014 to 2018 our job was to collect sales taxes from the dispensaries. So my question was, how much are we collecting? And no one in the agency knew because it is a Schedule One drug still. Uh, and when you take out a seller's permit, there is no code for you to check cannabis. So it could be healthcare, it could be food, uh, it could be miscellaneous. And so it was very hard to, um, you know, gather the data quickly. So my folks had to figure out who was out on the market publicly advertising and try to match up uh, whether they were uh, paying their sales taxes. And when we would come across a dispensary that was not uh, registered or we were auditing a dispensary, we would basically sit outside the establishment, you're supposed to do it for three full days, three different days during the month, and then extrapolate back. So if you said there's 300 customers on this day at you know, $50 a customer, it would equal this amount, and then we would average the three dates, extrapolate back three years at interest and penalties, and send the establishment a bill. Now, that's not quite efficient. And I was, um, and I found out very quickly that a lot of these establishments didn't take out seller's permits. Why? Because accountants, bookkeepers, attorneys, payroll companies, they could not legally work with the industry. Otherwise, they would be considered money launderers. So here you have an industry that now California is legal. We want them to do the right thing, yet nobody is helping them for guidance. And so that's um, what I, uh, you know, I I wanted to educate. We went around uh, to meet as many folks in the industry, spoke at many conferences and still do speak at many cannabis conferences about their legal requirements, but also to kind of break the stigma. Right, encourage more professionals to work uh, with the industry. Encourage the banks to do the due diligence to pass the FinCEN guidelines so that they could legally bank the industry. And that has worked. There's probably a dozen banks in California that is taking cannabis money, but clearly not enough. So when people are transacting uh, in the industry, paying their vendors, paying their rent, paying their taxes, they literally are. Walking around with backpacks or suitcases full of cash uh, to try to comply. And that is not efficient, it is not safe, and hence the reason we desperately need to um, have banking access. And as an accountant, on the, you know, putting on my accountant hat, you can't trace cash businesses. So when we walk into a business and ask them for documents and they say, well, they're a cash business. Uh, it's there's no you know bank statements no credit card statements it's very very hard to audit and trace or try to estimate how much money uh, they should be paying in taxes so it's not only a public safety issue but it is also a taxation issue
1: yes absolutely thanks for being such an advocate for uh, for greater transparency and, uh, yeah, functionality within that industry, very important.
2: And I'm sure Oregon is facing uh, some of the similar problems.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It'll be interesting to see how each state approaches this um, and um, how we can evolve and uh, continue to ride the wave uh, that may lead us towards national legalization. Um,
2: yeah and and just on another note, there are companies that are trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange, right? Uh-huh. and there are companies that are trading on our American stock exchanges. so things don't necessarily make sense um, and I'm not sure when our federal some of our federal congressional members are going to understand that. Other countries are surpassing us uh, in terms of their revenue collections. Um, their people are able to invest in uh, the stock market, uh, in stocks of these companies, and they're, you know, making money on it. And the U.S. is really falling behind um, by not allowing banking access.
1: Mm, yes. Could you give me a sense of where the revenue from the cannabis industry uh, is then? Spent. What what happens to it once it's collected from the state by the state?
2: Yeah. So um, the sales taxes uh, go into uh, the general fund, and it is distributed based on formulas uh, for different um, you know different buckets, and then the remainder is uh, used for different you know, general programs and services. So our income, 90% of our general fund budget comes from personal income tax, corporate income tax, and sales taxes. Hmm. So it's, it's not just one, you know, um, I can't tell you where all the money goes because it kind of goes into the pot and then it gets divvied up. Gotcha. But under Prop 62, uh, the adult use um uh initiative they are pretty prescriptive in terms of where the tax revenues um are going to be generated and where the money goes to and that was uh passed by voters um hold on a minute i'm going to try to pull it up quickly if i can and uh um and so I can't find it at this moment. Let me see. I got all these notes on my iPhone. Uh, but basically, you know, some will go to public safety programs. Some go back to, you know, educational. Some go back to, you know, youth and, and um, children's programs. Um, you know, mitigation efforts. So it is very prescriptive in the proposition.
1: Great. Thank you. I wanted to ask you briefly about uh, the role of credit unions in the financial ecosystem. I've been working with uh, the Post-Growth Institute and we're launching a study called the Credit Union Commercial Capabilities Study, and it really looks at what's holding back the development of full business services within the U.S. credit unions and what it would take for those barriers to be overcome. Uh, And we really see that credit unions uh, in their structure, instead of extracting money into private shareholders, the profits from the credit union, it's uh, cycled back into the local economies. So curious, your thoughts about credit unions?
2: Yeah, I mean, I am fully supportive of credit unions. Uh, Credit unions started in communities because uh, there was a need, uh, because groups of people didn't have maybe good credit and access um, to the big bank so to speak and so you know like community banks credit unions do serve a purpose um, I would like to see them grow because I think they're uh, just you know a, a great Avenue for folks who you know don't make a lot of money and don't have a lot of access to credit uh, to be able to also um, you know start a business or buy a car or even buy a home. Um, so I'm very supportive of credit unions.
1: Great, Uh, yeah, and also uh, in the news recently, New Zealand just revealed their well-being budget. And, uh, you know, just curious if you could speak to the importance of measuring success and prosperity, you know, in ways that include our well-being of people and and the environment instead of exclusively through economic growth.
2: Yes, Uh, so that is what um, like our whole ESG model is about is about more of a holistic approach to uh, capital and wealth and and investing. Um, And I definitely believe just like uh, in life, right? If you don't have work-life balance, um, something is gonna give eventually. And you always have to be mindful about not only your job every day, but taking care of yourself, taking care of your family, And I think New Zealanders, um, if they were ranked, what the happiest country, um, they understand that people should not, uh, be worried every day, whether they're going to get into an accident or, um, you know, get a disease and they can't afford health insurance or get kicked off of health insurance. I think that is something that we, um, need to focus on that. Healthcare care should be a right uh, and not a privilege. Education is another one, right? Public schools, every kid should have access to free quality public education. And it shouldn't be, if you have money, you can go to you know, a, a better um, school, a better college. I mean, you know what's happening now with the whole college entrance um, scam. And that shouldn't be the way any country operates is if you have money you can benefit and if you don't then you're gonna you know struggle and suffer so i think we all need to think about how to um better equalize uh wealth and we try to do a lot of that here in california because there is such a big gap between the rich and the poor and it's getting bigger um, that this governor has put a lot of emphasis in money uh, on, you know, programs that are going to try to equalize um, that disparity, whether it's the earned income tax credit, whether it is free second year community college uh, for uh, any first year college going um Uh, students, whether it's free preschool, because preschools have been uh, shown that they uh, help kids when they go to kindergarten so that they don't fall behind. Um, So these are a lot of the programs that California is funding uh, because the wealth distribution is getting bigger here in California, and we are very cognizant that there is still a growing number of homeless folks uh, that are not getting housing, and that's why housing is one of my priorities, is because when you don't have a roof over your head, um, then how are you supposed to be able to get a job, you know, build uh, wealth, uh, get a bank account, right? All the things that come from just having that roof over your head uh, has to be one of the priorities here in California.
1: Yes, thank you for that. In our final minutes here, I'd love to, as I often do with guests, just imagine a more vibrant, thriving economy and uh, and hear your vision of what you would like your legacy to be and how you imagine uh, the, the best uh, you know possible economy in society in, say ten or twenty years.
2: Yeah, um so housing is a very interesting. Um, place right now, not only because we have a housing crisis here in California, the governor wants to build 3.5 million new homes by 2025. Uh, and that is uh, a high bar. But my office does oversee the financing for affordable housing. So it is giving me an opportunity to look at the future, how we want to see communities. Um, we have a growing uh Uh, Tsunami right the what is it called silver tsunami coming where people are now living till 95 years old. And if we want to try to keep uh, seniors as we age, there has to be different models right they have to be in communities accessible to services, to a pharmacy, to medical care, to food um, and shopping. I mean, it can't just be out in the middle of, you um, you know, outside of town where they face isolation, they don't have transportation, they don't see friends. So we are really focused on like intergenerational type of housing and also special needs, right? As we get older, we do require special needs, uh, disability, um, you know, disabilities. And this is like an opportunity for us to shape, um, you know, the type of housing and retiring in dignity that I feel like is going to be some of my legacy. Uh, I also am focused on keeping jobs and businesses here in California because that is the engine, right? But Keeping jobs here means also that we need to uh, provide the necessary housing and services and schools and health care that will keep people here in California. And lastly, the environment. Climate change is real. Uh, We see it every day. It has been extremely hot this last week all over the state of California. My husband is a firefighter, and so um, when it gets to be summertime, especially when there's droughts, Um, there is definitely a impact uh, in terms of the amount of um, wildfires that we have been facing here in California. So we need to do more uh, in terms of investing in sustainable uh, infrastructure, building homes uh, that are greener, um, investing in companies uh, that are meeting our climate change goals and issuing you know, green bonds, which is directly under my purview, but making sure that when we say it's a green bond, that we can quantify what it is that we are telling investors that we are doing to help the environment uh, when we say it is a green bond. So that is another area that I am also focused on is um, creating that standard uh, of, uh, of what a green bond is.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. Love that. Wow. I know we could go on for hours here um, and really appreciate you taking this time and uh, curious if you have any uh, closing thoughts you'd like to share.
2: Well, I I think, you know, as women, I'm just inspired that there have been more women who have run for office in the last couple of years. I think women um, for a number of reasons um, feel like If not them, then who? And in my profession of politics, it usually takes women a lot longer uh, for them to step up and and run uh, for office. But it shows that when women run, women win. So I am very, very happy and I encourage more women to run for office.
1: Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you for being such a pioneer and and a voice for the environment, the elderly, the children, and just really managing the, the finances of California in a way that will create greater well-being for uh, people and planet and circulate uh, the the finances back into the, the communities which uh, you serve. And so thank you so much.
2: For, for having a show and uh, featuring us and giving me this opportunity to um, meet some of your listeners.
1: Yes, fantastic. All right. Thank you so much, Fiona.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.